You're listening to Renew Economy's weekly podcast, an update on clean energy and climate policy. With Renew Economy's editor, Giles Parkinson, leading energy market analyst, David Leach. Welcome to the RE Weekly Podcast, where David Leach and I go through the week's events and uh, try and bring some meaning to them. Today, we're going to have a look at some of the modelling issues that we highlighted this week and why that has a bad impact on government decisions and ultimately the consumer. We're also going to have a look at um, some good news in the solar front, some good news in the battery storage front, and David's going to have a look at some good news on the uh, network investment front and also go through the numbers of the week. So, David, um, hello. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks, Giles, and looking looking forward to today's discussion. Good. Well, let's kick it off with the modelling um, issue. Now, I've written a couple of articles this week. Um, I've taken issue with some modelling done um, by one of the um, government's favourite advisors and also by the Australian Energy Markets Commission. And I picked up on a couple of things. One, I didn't think that they got the technology costs right. In fact, I think they were so far out of the ballpark um, that they were terribly wrong. And the reason I got upset about this is that this influences the way people think about technology and the decisions they make and the policies they make. And if that has bad outcomes, that has bad outcomes for investors and for consumers. Um, so I got quite right about that, and um, we had some interesting discussions on the website as well. David, you've been an analyst for many, 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 many years. How do people get modelling so wrong? Uh, actually, Giles, that's a great question, and the answer is modelling is is nearly always wrong. I don't think I've ever seen a model yet in the financial sector that stands up all that well. Uh, there's a couple of other uh, points to make about it, though. Uh, the first one is that you know people are very selective, the mainstream media, which models they report on. If you give them a model about global... Uh, sorry. But uh, it, on the other hand, if you uh, give them a modelling about electricity prices that shows renewables making prices go up, then, then that's a fantastic model. So, um, but in, in this specific case, the things I wanted to point out uh, about an emissions intensity scheme is, firstly, it's not just about cost. And in fact, this applies to everything in the electricity modelling. And this is one thing the renewables industry does have to keep an eye on. You have to look at value and revenue, not just cost. And uh, the fact is, as we know in South Australia, gas gets a lot higher price than wind. And uh, wind may well be lower cost, but it doesn't necessarily always make it the better investment all by itself. Uh, I'm reminded of the old thing about, you know, the cynic knows the price of everything and the cost of, or the, and the value of nothing. And just before you go on, we should probably recap. One of the big issues about the modelling that we took up was the stories that appeared in the newspaper, which said that based on this modelling that was done on behalf of the Australian Energy Markets Commission, the um, an energy emissions intensity scheme came out as much cheaper for consumers. Now, what we pointed out was that this assumed very low gas prices and rather high solar costs. If you actually took a different view of those numbers, it turned out that a high renewable energy target actually produced the best value for consumers. And I guess one of the other issues about the modelling is that, as you probably just mentioned, it didn't actually look at the whole of... um, Oh, how would I describe it? It, it, it kind of stopped the, valu- the, the valuation and the benefits at 2030 when the benefits are actually going to go on much further than that. 
Yeah, so, and, you know, it all depends on the baseline. I mean, no one's going to build a gas-fired power station uh, with emissions factor of like 0.7 uh, uh, tonnes of carbon per, per megawatt hour if, in fact, in 2031 you're going to move your emissions baseline down to 0.3 or something like that and the gas power station's uh, not going to work at that point. Uh, the second thing you need to think about is with an emissions intensity scheme, if, if, um, if Danny Price has got his technology costs and Frontier Economics have got their technology costs wrong, uh, then in fact in the real world it won't be gas that displaces coal, it, it will in fact be solar or wind. The third point, of course, is it doesn't really allow for distributed energy in any effective way, and, and it's what I definitely would call one of these old-fashioned models that simply looks at uh, centralised utility-scale generation and assumes that's the only thing you have to model. Uh, which is that's just not the modern way. And, and the fifth and final point I'd like to make, it suffers from the defect of every one of these schemes that depends on future events, and that is it depends on the future politics. And having been through all the drama of the renewable energy target and also uh, all the drama around the, the carbon tax, then an emissions intensity scheme is going to suffer exactly from that defect. And it's, this is why I absolutely love the certainty of... St of uh, uh, reverse auctions where you know the state or someone guarantees your revenue for 20 years that is something you can literally take to the bank absolutely yes and um, look i was interested in your point too about this view about centralized generation and that still seems to be the overriding view that we're getting from these institutions the um, amc even the amo yet we've also seen these reports from Anna finkel last week uh, we saw the reports from the csiro and indeed the network system the network lobby just saying, accepting that we're actually moving very quickly to a distributed energy model, which is all about solar and storage on rooftops and homes and businesses, and that's probably going to provide between one-third and one-half of all energy needs in the future, and that's going to change a lot about the way we do business. Uh, and if, Go ahead. No, 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 no. I just want to mention, uh, again, I think there'll always be a role for utility-scale uh, generation, uh, only in the sense that the capacity factors of, for instance, uh, ground-mounted solar are so much better than the capacity factors of roof, roof solar that, you know, you get the saving not so much on the solar itself, but in all the associated other things that have to go with it. If your capacity factor for ground-mounted is 30%, uh, then, you know, you need a lot less of other forms of generation to back it up as compared to rooftop solar at 14%. Oh, no, that's right. You know, look, I agree with that, and I don't actually think that centralised generation is going to go away completely, but... Um, the, um, the rules and the design of the market will change. Now, that is going to have an impact on the networks as well. And you picked up on something very interesting from COAG yesterday, which is um, the ability of the networks um, to be able to appeal against the decisions made by the Australian regulator. And I'll just put in a bit of background before we go into the technical stuff. But basically what's happened is that every time the Australian energy regulator has tried to knock back the utilities on how much they can spend on their networks, building new stuff or um, maintaining the existing stuff and passing the costs on to consumers, they've been taken around the back of the shed and beaten up, and if that hasn't worked, they've been taken to court. Now, you've discovered something out of COAG which actually changes the nature of that. Yes, Giles. And so, you know, again, by way of further background, networks are not the sexy part of the business, but a lot of the pros hang out at networks in the investment land because they're 50% of the electricity cost uh, and they generally get a lot less argument and it's, it's revenue that slips below the, the radar. But as, as we know, the rise in network costs has been the single biggest factor in the rise in household electricity prices. 
And a part of that, you know, 10% for the sake of argument, has been due to appeals by the networks against AER decisions through to something called the Competition Tribunal. And uh, historically, the Competition Tribunal had a reputation of coming down in the network's favour. So, uh, but recently, there's been a, 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 a two interesting things have happened. Firstly, there was this decision in South Australia about two months ago where, where in fact, some different people on the tribunal basically came to the exact opposite conclusions to, the, to, to what they came to in, in New South Wales in the Osgrid case. And so that's a fascinating curiosity. And then secondly, yesterday, COAG, uh, which had been talking about getting rid of the tribunal, in the end didn't go quite that far. But what they have said is that uh, the network companies can no longer appeal elements about the cost of capital, which is about 40% of the revenue that a network company gets to the competition tribunal. They can only appeal the cost of capital directly through to the federal court, which you, you know will only happen once and, and uh, should result in less appeals and more certainty for everyone eventually. There are also a number of other changes in regards to the remaining uh, bits and pieces that can be appealed to the co uh, um, competition tribunal. And in very bad news for barristers, uh, there won't be any more oral hearings at the competition tribunal. It's only written submissions. Well, that's good news. But um, is it gonna, how much good news is it going to be for consumers? Will we actually see a reduction in network cost, do you think? Because that's, that's a critical part of the, um, the bills that we're paying. Uh, I don't think we'll see a reduction in network costs necessarily, although it's just possible that in the first quarter of next calendar year, when the federal court uh, finally rules on the New South Wales decision, that that they, if they were to come down in favour of the AER, we would see a fall in electricity prices in New South Wales. But overall, I think it's just going to uh, limit the excess returns that the network companies can, can earn. I still see that network costs will probably go up um, over time for this basic thing mm. we've seen before, that capacity utilisation in the network is likely to go down as distributed generation takes hold and because we're going to need more and different forms of investment in the way of storage, et cetera, et cetera. Indeed, and we've had a bit of news on the um, distributed generation front, which is essentially um, solar and battery storage. So in um, November, well, we just got the stats out for November, which shows that the amount of installation of rooftop solar in Australia was the highest it has been for a calendar month in more than two years. And um, that's going to be attributed to a bunch of different factors. One, there's a lot more interest in solar because prices are coming down. There's a rebate which is being wound out slightly from January the 1st. There's also the feed-in going to expire, so other people are thinking differently about their rooftop solar and possibly adding to it. They're looking to possibly add battery storage. And um, there's probably a bunch of other reasons too. Um, David, do you think that the solar market is going to continue to increase or do you think this is a bit of a temporary blip? Um, well... You know, there's the two forces, Giles, at work here. I mean, globally, there was a fantastic amount of PV installed, mainly driven by China in the first six months of the year. China itself installed 26 gigawatts in six months. <laughs> a truly astonishing number. Now, the point about that is that and they've installed... Just to put that in perspective, in that six months, Australia probably installed about 300 on its rooftops and probably another... Well, no, that's probably about it, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, 26 was what the whole world was installing three or four years ago, and now China did it in six months. But the point here is China's, as a result of drops in feed-in tariffs, it's always regulations, China's actually installations have dropped to next to nothing in the, in the second half of calendar 2016. 
And what this means is there's all this fantastic surplus of manufacturing capacity sitting mainly in China that, uh, that now doesn't have any market. So this is, of course, leading to oversupply and much lower prices for for installers. And so it's a great time if you're thinking about putting some rooftop solar on to get out and get it done for Christmas. And, you know, I think it makes the value of the house go up and uh, putting the average size of an installation is going up. And, uh, um, you know, that's going to make it great for when we, the household storage prices uh, are coming down to the point where we're closer and closer to being able to say it's economic and uh, more of a consumer choice decision. And I, I, also, Giles, I don't know what you think, but I, I, I always think that the, the business market still has a fantastic amount of uh, room for expansion in PV in Australia. Oh, look, I think that's right, and I think that's part of the big forecast um, going forward for New South Wales and Queensland, and I was struck by the CSIRO and the networks forecast, which was predicting a fivefold increase in the amount of solar over the next 10 years, and then quadrupling over and above that um, going up to 2040. Um, the other interesting statistic was in Western Australia, which has had a record uh, month of installations over there. Now, Western Australia, you may remember, has actually got the highest, um, well, one of the highest electricity prices in uh, electricity costs in Australia, but it's actually massively subsidised by the government, and they're looking to wind back those subsidies, which means higher prices for consumers, because the government can't afford to pay them anymore out of its budget. So um, I think people are turning to um, solar and they're also going to be turning to storage. And um, we had some interesting stories today as well, or this week as well. Um, AGL are putting in what they describe as the world's biggest virtual power plant um, in South Australia. Uh, that involves 1,000 battery storage devices linked in different houses. And the, AG the idea that AGL wants to pursue here is being able to link them all together um, and then use that to respond to peak demand or even uh, as a backup for the network to provide frequency control. Um, interestingly enough, the network provider down in South Australia is doing a similar trial. They've also just in 100 battery um, in a household, which they're doing a slightly different trial, which is actually to defray uh, network costs. And what's interesting about this is that battery storage is going to have many different layers of value for households eventually. It's going to be able to store their solar into the evening it's going to be able to, well, you've got that power shift, you've got being able to provide services, meeting peak demand, you've got providing services, providing um, frequency and, um, and security for the grid, and also as an offset to grid upgrades. So instead of buying new transformers or even building powerful lines, um, having battery storage in the local network is also going to assist, and um, this is one of the big changes we're going to see over the next couple of years. Absolutely, Giles. I think that's right. And I think Australia is a fantastic market for showing the value of putting the storage behind the meter in the household. But to access all of these value streams is going to require some sophisticated software. And frankly, I don't hold out a lot of hope that the average consumer is really going to understand what they should be doing with their battery at any particular time. I'd also say that for anyone that's interested in these topics to have a listen to our other uh, ITK podcasts where we interviewed uh, Merrick Kubik uh, from AES, the world's biggest utility scale storage company, talking about what's going on in Ireland, but also the state of charge report, which talks about all of these different value streams and how they can be accessed in, in Massachusetts. And I think the conclusion you come to is there's no doubt everyone concludes that storage is best placed on the fringe of the grid. And in Australia, that means on the premises. 
And then it's just a question of <laughs> designing the software to, so that the network companies, the generators, the households, and it, we can all get the benefits that ultimately lead to lower prices. Absolutely, and I think there's going to be plenty um, of energy providers trying to make it as simple as they possibly can for the households because um, you're right, households will not be sit there looking at their energy output and their consumption every minute or every hour of the day. They just really want to have a set and forget. But um, I think that technology is coming down. Now, just to quickly wrap up, um, David, um, you've got some numbers on some electricity prices this week. Maybe if you tell us briefly what they are and why they're important. Yeah, sure. So I always like to have a look at the um, what's going on in the national electricity market, which, is, of course, is not national because it doesn't include West Australia or the Northern Territory. But uh, consumption for the year is uh, running at an annualised rate of about 181 terawatt hours, uh, which is actually flat on last year for the year to date. Uh, and Victoria for the week was down 14%, and that's due to the uh, um, one of the um, Portland smelter potlines being closed. Uh, baseload future prices, uh, basically for FY18, they're looking at $70 in New South Wales and as much as $108 in South Australia. And those prices are up $20 a megawatt hour uh, compared to a year ago. And that's why electricity prices will be up 7 or 8% next year for, for businesses and, and households. Uh, gas prices, look, when it's hot, the gas generation has to run. And gas prices in uh, South Australia last week were at $10.40 a gigajoule. No one, I mean, this idea that you're going to build a whole lot of gas fire generation is fairly laughable. They can't even find enough gas to make the existing plants run. <laughs> I mean, <you> do, <laughs> it just is funny, really, when you think about it. But, uh, and that's the other point about the modelling. I mean, if Danny's got his costs wrong, in, in the end, uh, um, you know, the, the, the market will build what's needed under emissions intensity scheme. But I think anyone with half a brain realises that if electricity prices are going up because Hazelwood's closing... And and it's true they will. It's because there's not enough supply coming through to replace it. So, you know, anyone who's interested in energy security really wants, to, and keeping prices down, needs to make sure there's enough new supply. What we need is the incentives to get new supply into the market. Now, that's and guess, only... And, and, and guess what, David? The new supply, the cheapest new supply, actually turns out to be wind and solar. Look, I'm going to have to wrap it up there because um, we're probably running out of time. Um, I'd just like to invite people to listen to us next week. David and I are going to be back to look at the year that was and perhaps the year that will be in 2017. So um, thanks, David. Another great discussion. And um, thanks to you for listening. And uh, we'll talk again next week. Bye.